Scripture lesson this morning is Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 and reading through chapter 4 and verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in your providence you have brought this message from Paul to us this day. We pray that we would hear it, that we would understand it, that we would perceive it. Indeed, that you would impress it evermore upon our hearts and upon our faith, and so direct our steps in faithfulness to you. For the building up of your church, the growing of your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we hear this text from Paul regarding slaves and masters, we think he got it wrong, don't we? I mean, just look at it. He spends four verses addressing the slaves and only one to masters. Something like 57 words versus 18 words in the text. Why isn't Paul harder on the masters? Why doesn't he have more to say to them? Well, we can't know for sure, but it could be on account of the fact that there were more slaves than masters in the Colossian church. Could be, but even making that observation takes us all the way back to the beginning of the letter and reminds us that Paul is writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, which includes slaves and masters. That might be a little bit difficult for us to get our modern minds around, but that was the context to which Paul is writing to the first century church and was likely the case for other congregations. Even as we know, it was true in the case of Ephesus and other parts of Asia Minor, as well as to the east in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, as addressed in Peter's first letter. Now, we're, we're ready to organize a slave revolt. But we don't find anything close to that in what Paul says here, or anywhere else in the New Testament for that matter. Though what is taught here inevitably leads to the ending of slavery given enough time. Perhaps Paul's teaching isn't radical enough for some in our day and age, but there's a sense in which it was radical for his own day and time. And when we get the sense of it, we realize that once again the apostle has much to say to us as a church and our current context. Last week we considered Paul's command to the family, the household, and given the context of slavery in the Roman Empire, the household, uh, the household rules continue in this section since the slaves have been very much a part of the home. Paul continues with his pattern, as noted last time, of addressing the group in the inferior position first and then speaking to the corresponding superior second. 
addressing the subordinate versus fitting, since Paul is writing to the church who is subordinate to the authority of Christ. And we have to understand that part of what Paul is doing, well, is quite revolutionary. And his teaching would certainly have caught the attention of his audience, since it wasn't in keeping with how these relationships were generally understood in that day and time. As we begin, let's attempt to achieve a reasonable picture of the slavery that existed in the Roman Empire. While there there were certainly those that abused their slaves and considered them to be chattel, and great atrocities were committed, others would intentionally sell themselves into slavery to climb the social ladder, to gain Roman citizenship, or to obtain a certain security of life for themselves and or their families. There wasn't a source of wealth or from the government, and so a free man had to make his own way in the world. Whereas a slave, a household servant, or a bond servant, would likely be provided with clothes, food, and even a place to live. Slaves also held important positions within a household. They could act as teachers, could own land, or slaves themselves, and sometimes preferred to be slaves. Though we may be familiar with the famous slave revolt under Spartacus, by and large, there wasn't a general unrest among the slaves in the Greco-Roman world. And while we might wonder why Paul didn't simply declare emancipation for slaves, demanding it of masters, or to hold to such a position is simply naive. Remember, there were Christian slaves working for non-Christian masters. It would have simply been foolish to suggest instant emancipation. And as the church was in its very early stages of existence at this point in history, it didn't have any real position of influence in the empire and would have only further complicated a witness, making it harder than it already was. As alluded to already in Paul's instruction here and elsewhere in the New Testament, we're given the ingredients for abolishing slavery. And in a remarkable way, that is a reflection of the kingdom of Christ and of heaven. You know, Paul's not going to declare revolt and emancipation because that's not how the kingdom of heaven works. That's not the fundamental message of the gospel. That's not what's been, what he's been advocating as the life that is from above. The Apostle Paul has already given a significant clue about the effects of the gospel back in verse 11 when he teaches that there's no longer slave nor free. That kind of distinction is for an old world and old order, but the world has been transformed in Christ who is reconciling and redeeming all things to himself. You can say that Christ even reconciles slavery to himself, that he redeems it. And one of the ways in which this profound truth is evidenced is the great, uh, the great way in which Christ sets the pattern, even for slaves, in his incarnation. Now think about the astonishing description of humility that Paul gives in Philippians 2. That Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus took the form of a slave, a servant, and he modeled that for his disciples, even as we're taken back to John 3 when he washes the disciples' feet. But remember his instruction there in verse 16 of that chapter. Most assuredly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. This term slave, it's the same term that we find here in Colossians, the same one that's used in Philippians, used in Ephesians, and so forth. And what, what are we to understand? What we are to understand is that, that Christ elevates the station of the slave by becoming one himself. And in so doing, sets forth the pattern to be traced. And as you hear Paul's instructions to these Colossian slaves, you can almost hear the echo of Jesus' own words concerning his obedience, his submitting himself to the will of his heavenly Father. 
Now, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he declares the Father's will to be his chief concern and not his own. And notice something here, uh, something else here at the outset. In the first three verses addressed to the slaves, Paul couches his commands and instructions in the phrases, fearing the Lord for the Lord and serving the Lord Christ. Paul's teaching has a notably Lord-centered tone. The slave's perspective has changed, and by faith, this is the manner in which he puts, uh, further puts on the light from above in service to his earthly master as he serves the heavenly one. Well, let's, let's begin to get into some of the details, and, and, well, and let's not miss the obvious fact that Paul speaks to the slaves directly, just as he did to wives and children. Servants had their place even as weaker members in acting according to the law of heaven. The, the rule that will revolutionize the rule that, that revolutionizes the world, of which they have their part in place to bring about the changes that are sure to come. As with family members addressed in verses 18 to 21, so the commands continue in this latter section. Verse 22. Slaves, obey according to all to the Lord's according to the flesh, not in eye service as men pleasers, but in simplicity of heart, fearing the Lord. The commands of slaves to obey echoes the same commands of children, and notice how all encompassing the obedience is that Paul describes, according to all, or in everything. When the master isn't asking you to sin, then you're supposed to obey. And Paul is addressing motive here, isn't he? He's addressing the heart level when he speaks to the fact that the slaves shouldn't only work hard when someone's looking. Their focus isn't just to get a good quarterly report. No, explicitly, uh, Paul says that, that they shouldn't be trying to please men at all. That shouldn't motivate them. Instead, they're, have, they're to have a singleness of heart, a simplicity or purity of devotion, which conveys a specific focus. Paul is doing something here that, that's a bit subtle, but interesting, because he refers to masters, to lords, according to flesh, and contrasts them with the Lord, a reference to Jesus, at the end of the verse. This is Paul's ninth use of the word flesh in Colossians, and it has some nuanced uses given surrounding context. And the first level of understanding here is that these slaves have, have living, in-flesh masters that they answer to. But that's all the farther their lordship, their mastery goes. They aren't the Christian's, the Christian slave's master of his spirit. They, they aren't the primary lord to whom the slaves are ultimately answerable. And notice that the slaves are to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. And when we can't hear the phrase, the fear of the Lord, what immediately comes to mind? Hopefully Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul is calling the slaves to exercise wisdom in their obedience to their masters. And this allusion to wisdom fits well, fits in well with the wisdom mentioned by Paul back in verse 16 that stems from God's word and even acts as a further apologetic against the threat of Judaism, since fearing the Lord is a very Jewish thing. Paul then builds on the principle he's just established and somewhat restates and and re-emphasizes the point when he commands in verse 23, whatever you may do, out of the soul, work as to the Lord and not to men. Work is the imperative, the command. 
Any duty, any work which is set before the slave, he is to do it from the soul. Now, Paul doesn't use heart here, but soul. Though they're similar ideas in, in some ways, soul can reflect the idea of human vitality, a vivified body. And so Paul is referring to action done from the vital heart of the person. This is certainly a challenging demand, but if we consider it long enough, then we realize that Paul is advocating that there's well, there's a dignity that's connected to any form of work, to any form of duty, no matter how menial or seemingly insignificant it may be. If it's done from the soul unto the Lord, and not for the approval or applause of men, in other words, when it's done by faith, well, then the work is utterly transformed. And isn't this the, the challenge of the life of faith for any believer in their employment, vocation, or calling? To understand that the service that you render, the work that you do, is really to God and not to men. Now, I think you certainly give lip service to this being true, as we're all sitting here and being reminded of this fact, and certainly not our heads, and you know, this biblically informed work ethic. But does this perspective of faith go, go with you when you walk out the door and when the work grind starts up again on Monday morning? Paul is speaking to slaves, no doubt about it, but isn't it very it isn't very difficult to see the implications here for employees in relation to their employers, or to students in relation to their teachers, or even for the chores you might have around the house. Does your attitude about work come from your soul, and so you seek to do what's before you the best that you can? Not in some sort of perfectionistic fashion, but with the sincerity of wanting to bring honor to the Lord in your work. You know, or do you attempt to cut every corner so you can make it easier for yourself and get done more quickly so you can do what you really want to do? You know, perhaps one, if not the chief manifestations of the rebellious nature we inherited from Adam is when it comes to our work, our employment. Particularly when someone else is telling us what to do. Generally speaking, we don't want other people telling us what to do. And then that gets exacerbated when we think we're more competent than the one giving us orders. Or think we can do a better job than him or her. But what does Paul tell us to do? To do the work well unto the Lord. He's echoing what he said back in verse 17. And all which whatever, whatsoever you do, in word or in work, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Slaves, employees, students need to be thankful people, even in the midst of duties that are less than desirable, doing their work as to the Lord. Now when you're having to read a book that you don't particularly like, or you might even find boring, or write a paper about a topic you think you could care less about, then you need to pause and take stock and consider if you've got the right attitude. If you're doing your work after the war. And guess what? Not working to please men can even include yourself after a fashion. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have or find satisfaction in our work because we're created to work. I'm not talking about that. Rather, you know, if, if you're shirking your work to please yourself, then it's highly likely you're not working as under the Lord. From the soul. Well, Paul continues with this exhortation in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. To the Lord Christ serve. The apostle is thoroughly impressing upon the slaves the perspective their faith is to have. 
since they're not to be men pleasers, then there's no expectation of reward from them. It's possible that Paul is addressing the idea that a slave would receive his freedom at the death of his master, which would have been welcome. But even that isn't where the slave's faithful expectation should lie. No, it's in the Lord. A word he repeats two times in the single verse. As he's done throughout chapter 318 to 4.1, Paul puts the focus of the saints for their respective sphere of life firmly upon the Lord. Also, Paul's mention of inheritance echoes back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, the one having made us fit for the part of the inheritance of the saints in the light. There may even be, be a bit of irony in what Paul is saying to the slaves on account of the fact that uh, slaves apparently didn't have any inheritance rights. But here Paul is saying that they have an expectation of receiving an inheritance from the Lord. Again, Paul is elevating the position of slave in the ancient world. He's giving it a new dignity on account of the gospel, on account of what Jesus has done. At the end of verse 24, it appears that Paul gives a final command to the slaves, to the Lord Christ serve. It's the third time Paul reminds the slaves of their relationship to the Lord. So once again, he, he presses the point of the singular focus slaves are to have in their service. Not to look to their earthly masters at all, but to their master in heaven, the Lord Christ. Interestingly enough, this is the only time in Paul's writings that he uses the phrasing Lord Christ. I suppose we could render it the Lord Anointed One or the Master Messiah. Maybe there's a bit more theology Paul is seeking to impart the expression in that you have a master who is also a redeemer. Could be. But then notice verse 25, that Paul has one more instruction for slaves, and it's hardly to be taken lightly. For the one doing wrong, he will receive that which he has done wrong. And there is no partiality. Now, we need to take Paul's words at face value, and the initial way to understand them is that if slaves are doing wrong, if they're being unjust or unrighteous in their actions for their masters, then they can expect to receive back the consequences of such actions. There's no partiality, there's no respect of persons when it comes to this judgment. What Paul seems to be indicating is that there are built-in consequences for unrighteousness, which is certainly true. Put another way, the Christian slave shouldn't think that he'll get a pass when he does poor work for his master or is lazy because he's a Christian. Now, if a slave does wrong, if he's unjust, then he'll reap what he says. As one scholar notes, there is a God-given justice among peoples and individuals determined by God, and that those who ignore or flatter cannot expect to escape the consequences, whether slaves or masters. And while this exhortation is given directly to slaves, it's argumentative, there's also a sense in which it applies to masters, given the real, given the kind of the general manner in which it's stated, and it can even act as a tra transition into the final verse for this section in chapter 4, verse 1. The command that Paul imparts to masters, Lord, what is righteous, what is equal to slaves, give, knowing that you have a Lord in heaven. The imperative is give, or offer, or do for. And so how are masters to treat their servants? By doing what is right, what is just, and what is fair. There shouldn't be mistreatment or favoritism. And the evidence behind this treatment for these Christian masters, these Christian lords, is that they know they have a lord in heaven. 
the mention of heaven should take us back to the opening verses of the chapter, chapter 3, where Paul commends the resurrection, of, the resurrection life of seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated in his position of rule and reign over all things. And then all that Paul says between there, chapter 3 and verse 1, and here, chapter 4 and verse 1, also applies. But here's a real-world application for these masters and how they put on the heavenly life that is invading the earth through the just and fair treatment of their slaves, some of whom are their brother in Christ. And here's how masters chiefly apply their faith. You know, just as we've seen with every particular group that Paul addresses in this section on the household, so masters find a primary expression for their faith in their treatment of their servants. And that treatment is dictated by God's word, which defines what is just, what is righteous, what is fair. The kind of life to which Paul is calling masters and slaves to live is utterly transformative. It, it's world-changing. And Paul doesn't hesitate to direct the faith of the masters to the Lord in heaven, where Jesus is seated in his position of power and rule, where he's over all of the principalities and powers, and there's no one above him. Jesus, your Savior, is seated in that exalted place. He's the judge over all things, and he won't show favoritism or prejudice. There's a profound accountability placed upon masters in light of this. They aren't all times. They can't just act according to their whims, but will give account for how they treated those under Now, of course, the implications of the principles apply to anyone in a position of authority. How you treat those subordinate to you matters. The lords are to remember their lord in heaven. The master to whom all earthly masters must give an account. And if masters are called upon to treat their slaves this way, if this principle of conduct applies to what we might say is this extreme situation of relationship, then how much more so every lesser relationship between superiors and inferiors? Again, there's, certainly there's application here for how employers are to treat employees. And the way of threatening is not the key to success. And sometimes you have to be tough on subordinates, on those who are under your authority, but you can't go, you can't exercise proper mastery over them through continual threats. And that won't produce a healthy work environment. It won't produce a healthy classroom environment or a healthy home, even as the principle applies to other spheres of life where the superior, uh, inferior relationships exist. And I know I've talked about this two or 200 times before, but it's good to continue to drill down and drive home the principle that submission is a necessary prerequisite for authority and leadership. When you learn submission, you're also learning a key principle for leadership. Because you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of your subordinates, which is necessary in order for leadership to be successful. When you spend time as a servant, you're being trained to be a leader. You know what it's like to do the work. And isn't this the very pattern that we see in Christ, that he came as a slave, that he came to serve in order to procure the redemption of his people and the world, that on account of his submission was exalted to his position of authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And the same is true for us as believers, the very stations that we inhabit, wherein we may have a position of a superior in one setting, but being an inferior in another. You know, maybe the concept of servant leadership has been overdone in recent times, but it's a biblical principle. 
What's one of the primary associations with leadership in the Old Testament? A shepherd. It's virtually a training ground for leadership. Such was the case for Jacob, Moses. Yahweh was a shepherd to Israel. The kings were to shepherd the people. And of course, David was the premier example of that as a shepherd king. But being a shepherd inherently means tending the flock, serving the sheep. And so this principle of service in relation to leadership does not be new to thousands of years old. And really also part of how God made the world a function. But it also has been reinvigorated and reestablished in the redeeming and reconciling work of Christ. And so it's for us to recognize this and pursue it and cultivate this in our faith and thinking, our families, children, and community. Of course, we do this through, um, do this to a certain degree through instruction. But isn't it interesting that the very next thing that Paul talks about in chapter 4 and verse 2, as he directs his exhortation to the congregation as a whole, is prayer. You know, what do you need to be a master, such as Paul describes? Prayer. What do you need in order to be a servant, a good employee, such as Paul details? Prayer. Why? Because, again, these biblical perspectives don't necessarily come naturally to us. If you're in a job that you don't particularly like, or have a boss that is especially difficult, then you need to pray in order to have the right attitude for your job or your boss. That's fundamental to having the right attitude under the authority. It's also fundamental to having the right attitude about authority. Because if you're always exasperated with those under your care and supervision, then you're likely not thinking about how to serve them. We need to understand that when we pray, we're drawing closer to God. And when we do that, we get closer to our own heart because God deals with our hearts. It's an application of the principle that John Calvin espoused at the beginning of the Institutes. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to yourself. When we view relationships only by sight, not by faith, if we see relationships only as men, then we lose. And we're not promoting the life of the kingdom. We're not putting on the life from above that also transforms the workplace in our experience and contribution to it. And we were made to work. And Adam's fall and sin and our sin, of course, complicates that. But Christ demonstrated the way forward into the new world of work, even as Paul is teaching us here. So when you find yourself having the wrong attitude about work or complaining about a circumstance, don't neglect to go to prayer. And remember that God isn't absent from the workplace. And you can do your work as unto the Lord. And this, this doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances that can't warrant you looking for another job or something like that. But you still want to have the proper attitude in the midst of your current circumstances because it's honoring to the Lord, and the Lord will use your work for his glory and his purpose. Maybe you wonder how the work you're doing is really beneficial to the work of Christ King upon the earth. Especially if your employer isn't particularly righteous or may uh, believe things or take stances contrary to what you know to be true. Well, consider this principle from Proverbs 13.22. As a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Let me read the second line again. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And whatever the wicked may think they're accomplishing for their own purposes, they're ultimately wrong. And it will be the righteous God's people who will ultimately take advantage of it. 
So you can do your work faithfully, knowing that it's still serving the Lord's purposes. And Paul is clear that whether slaves or masters, bosses or employees, God sees the work that we do and will apportion consequences for them. Again, it's, it's true that there's a sense that consequences are built in. Also, well, if, if you approach everything in life half-heartedly, or if you're always indifferent, if you're constantly careless, then that's the kind of person you're going to become. On the other hand, if you go through life seeking to do things well, the best of your ability, then that's the kind of person you'll become. This past week I came across an observation that struck me anew, but it's the, it's the principle that action produces character. Action produces character. I suspect we often think that character produces action. I mean, that's, that's certainly true to a degree as well. But there's a great deal of truth in the fact that action produces character. So when you give yourself to right actions, it will produce good character. And what better litmus test than how we conduct ourselves in relation to our work, our vocation, our calling? Whether employed or self-employed, whether in menial work or as the head of a company. And children, for many of you, your primary work, your vocation, is as a student. Do you approach your studies with a view to glorify the Lord? To be faithful to Him, even when studying Latin or grammar or reading a difficult book? You just rush through it in a haphazard, half-baked fashion. Or do you seek to do your best and honor the Lord with your work? Now, this doesn't mean you have to get straight A's. Nor does it mean that there won't be things that are difficult for you to learn or do. But approach your work with the right attitude and disposition of faith. And remember to pray for it. So that your life may be characterized by faithful actions that will produce faithful truth. Jesus was a good and faithful servant in the work that his father gave him to do. And all of us are called to follow his example, trace his pattern, and our lives live unto him. So heed the apostles' commands, and set yourselves anew to the work that your heavenly king has given your hands to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, creator of heaven and earth, it is out of your love and wisdom that you have given us work to do and fitted us in body and mind to do it. And yet our sinful will too often dreads the workday and casts it out for other things to do. But you, O God, have called us to our work. Forgive us our sins. Strengthen us by your spirit that we may see that our place of work is a field of your service to family, fellow workers, and neighbors. Give us joy in our vocations and make us glad and grateful for the strength to serve you. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.